The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. We are live from Davos and London this morning. I'm Jeff Cutmore. And I'm Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. So let's focus on Japan. Stocks surging while the yen has its worst session in almost three years. And JGB's retreat as the Bank of Japan stands firm on its yield curve control process. Well, the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, tells CNBC Russian President Vladimir Putin is fighting a losing battle as he calls on allies to step up support. For the time being, in my opinion, we're not doing nearly enough to fully halt the Russian invasion. We've indeed done enough to blunt the Russian onslaught through the help that we've provided. However, in order to beat them, they need so much more help. The German finance minister Christian Lindner tells CNBC there are no winners in a trade war as he calls for open dialogue with the US administration over measures to tackle inflation. And Goldman Sachs reporting its worst earnings miss in a decade, with profits also plunging at rival Morgan Stanley. Here at Davos, though, bosses of Bank of America and Citigroup predicting a more muted downturn. And China reports a steady rise in full-year foreign direct investment as Vice Premier Liu He prepares for talks with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in Zurich today. If we work hard enough, China's economy will see a significant improvement in 2023, and it is a high-probability event that the economic growth rate will reach a normal level. We also expect that China's imports will increase significantly this year, investment will increase substantially, and residents' consumption will return to normal. Everyone, welcome to our programming here from the World Economic Forum. You've, yeah. had a, you've had a couple of panels, haven't you? Had a couple of panels. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, I was um, talking about emissions last night with the climate minister of uh, Pakistan, right. plus um, some some pretty intense uh, people from the corporate. You always got to be careful when you're talking about emissions. I think. Uh, but but in the context that you're talking about, I think very important. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and look, you know, Pakistan is at ground zero. I mean, mm. here's a stat for you: where there was no lake before, after the the, the floods and what have you, there's there's like places of Pakistan that got a thousand kilometer lake now. They their farmers are having to deal with over fifty mm. plus degrees in the summer as well, unprecedented temperatures. So if anyone mm. thinks that there isn't a battle to be fought uh, on mm. a lot of this stuff still, on getting to net zero, well, then they should look at how devastating it is in countries like Pakistan. I also did a, a panel on um, on uh, innovation in finance. Mm. And, and look, and, and I, I put it to the panel, not all financial innovation is mm. good. A lot of it is very, very bad for our viewers, for the world, for customers, for consumers as well. It can't just be about the machinations uh, amongst Wall Street and selling more complicated products all the time. But then there's, mm. there's good innovation as well. So, uh, yeah, some really mm. interesting stuff. And in the meantime, you and I have been talking to some pretty heavyweight politicians. We'll, yeah. we'll hear more of my uh, 
president of Poland interview later on. You spoke to Christian Lindner. I heard you had a really yep, great was, interview with him. That was uh, terrific. Um, we talked about a lot of things, um, about how uh, Germany is making a lot of its neighbours unhappy because it appears to have the fiscal headroom to subsidise a lot of businesses. So we were discussing that and whether the desire in Germany to ease state aid rules is a good idea or not. But also what was, uh, was very interesting, we were talking about how to resolve this disagreement in Europe over the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and the perception that it favours American technology companies. Came up in my panel. And he had some yeah. interesting ideas that weren't about necessarily directly subsidising European rivals or a trade war. In fact, he was talking about, let's take a lot of the trade barriers out of the picture. So, I mean, given that he is a much more conservative and uh, liberally focused um, uh, politician in Germany, um, you would imagine that they'd be looking for a business-type solution rather than more state intervention. Yeah, look, look, the initial reaction from Europe and and the Commission when we saw the IRA was, right, okay, that's a threat to our companies. Uh, How how can we go up against this and perhaps have some punitive action? The reaction now is, oh, yeah, maybe it's a good idea and actually we should all be doing that. And the reaction from people I was speaking to on panels about this yesterday is, look, Mm. Look, it's a good thing if you're getting companies who are getting incentives, the carrot as well as the stick, but the carrot in this case, to invest Mm. in uh, green technologies and go for it with government support. This is the gold standard. So, yes, everyone should be doing this rather than bemoaning the fact that one jurisdiction has done it. Let's talk about the yeah. um, uh, the headline story this morning, then, because I think everybody's uh, got an interest in what's happening with the Bank of Japan. Uh, the yen is sharply weaker against the dollar after the BOJ surprised the market by leaving its yield curve tolerance band unchanged. The yield on the 10-year JGB retreated away from the 0.5% upper end, having traded above that for five straight sessions. Japan's central bank kept interest rates rates unchanged as expected at negative 0.1%. I mean the the fascinating story here is is really whether the Bank of Japan uh, can continue to control the market expectation that policy is shifting and obviously the market is trying to front run the changes but the Bank of Japan suddenly playing um, catch up it seems after their announcement. So I'm going to do one anecdote, and yeah. then I'll deal some facts. The anecdote is, he and I, well, actually, we were just ships in the night. I was coming into the Congress for a panel. Jeff was just leaving after doing a big interview. And we bumped into a former very important central banker, okay? And I won't name names or name the central bank, but we talked about this. I and mean, this is the kind of conversations you have and the access that he and I have. And this central banker said, yeah, we looked at yield curve controls at beep i don't tell you who it was and where it was and you know what we didn't do it because we didn't have a clue how we were going to get out of it mm. and this is the problem for the bank of japan and what a pertinent conversation that was i think mm. it's a short conversation but and the fact of the matter is the japanese spent 265 billion dollars on bond purchases uh, last month to maintain uh, the yield within the band of the half percent tolerance either way as well. Mm. But when you add that to the stats out there, let's listen to the facts, ladies and gentlemen. You've got an overnight rate, which this gentleman just said is 0.1%, negative 0.1% is your overnight rate. You've got November core CPI up 3.7%. You've got Uniqlo. Now, why am I saying Uniqlo? Because it's one of the biggest employers in the country. Mm. Uniqlo has just said it is raising wages by 40% for its employees. So let's just look at the facts. 
You're spending hundreds of billions of dollars maintaining uh, a, a policy which is very, very challenging, as you just said. Mm. You've got negative 0.1% interest rates. You've got 3.7% CPR, which is a 40-year high. Mm. And you've got one of the biggest employers in the country putting wages up by 40%. This, oh, oh sorry, I forgot to mention, you've got a 266% debt to GDP as well. This is an enormous headache. It's ironic, isn't it? Because um, just referring back to the previous conversation where we were talking about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and how so much of the money is focused on the green transition, uh, and there's been so much opposition, and yet this is what everybody was looking to the United States to do for years. And suddenly everybody's a bit uncomfortable with it. And it's a bit like the, um, the Bank of Japan story. The, the, you remember the three-arrow uh, approach? Arbonomics, right? And um, basically the Bank of Japan was, was really the one arrow that seems to have been incredibly effective. And the, what was the whole point? The point was about getting inflation back into the economy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have inflation back into the economy. It may not be Western-style size double digit, but it is inflation. And what you're saying about now price rises for wor- or wages going up for workers illustrates that Japan is also experiencing some of that overspill of price pressures here. And the market doesn't like it. The Bank of Japan doesn't like it because all of a sudden it's having to react here. And as you say, you know, that conversation was illuminating because it does remind us that when you pursue these exceptional experiments in monetary policy, it's never quite clear how you are going to unwind it. And it's the same issue facing not only the BOJ, but the ECB, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England at this stage, because they all have bloated balance sheets that really ought to be unwound. But how you do that without generating a very, very big bow wave for financial markets that potentially swamps economies, very hard to know at this point. You do it very carefully. If only we had a window in to one of the most important people in Japan on a panel on Friday with one of our top anchors. If only we had... Hang on a second. Isn't Kuroda-san on your panel on Friday? Yes, he is. Um, We will see which one we get because sometimes he's very fulsome and has a lot to say, and sometimes he uh, becomes rather cryptic, and we will have to see which of those personalities Um, we get on Friday. But hopefully, given that he will be leaving the bank in April, he will feel comfortable giving us uh, quite a lot of gen on what's going on. I'm so excited about your panel. In fact, you know, I'm so excited. I'm going to donut it from here in the studio as well. So I'll be here before, during... (laughs) Hang on, it, it says here in the rundown for Friday, Steve donuts the panel. It's true. A lot of people want that job, though. Uh, Right, let's move on. Another huge story. Russian President Vladimir Putin is a tyrant who wants to enslave Ukraine. Now, that is according to the Polish President Andrzej Duda, who told me that although a diplomatic solution to the war is unlikely, halting the expansion of Russia's influence remains critical. Today, what will happen in Ukraine will be determined by the level of support granted by Western nations, so broadly speaking, the EU countries, but not just them, also the United States, Australia, Canada, all nations that are part of what we call the free world. Vladimir Putin wants to enslave Ukraine. He wants to expand his regime across Ukrainian territory, take away Ukrainians' freedom. Why? 
because Ukrainians decided that they want to be part of the community of free nations. They want to be part of the European Union. They want to be part of NATO. This has been broadly discussed in the past few years. Myself, but not just me, many other experts as well, state very clearly that the fact that Putin first invaded Ukraine in 2014 and then launched a full-scale aggression last February 24th is a means of halting this process of Ukraine and other countries from moving from the old Soviet sphere of influence towards free democratic countries. This is the question the free world has to ask itself. Do we allow countries to be enslaved by tyrants like Putin, who deny all democratic rules, who want to terrorize and enslave others and take advantage of their potential for their own benefit? Or do we think that the free world can progress and every country has the right to self-determination? If that's what we believe in, we have to defend Ukraine. Sir, this isn't just about Russia's war in Ukraine, as you've just said. This is also about Russia's war in Europe, as you in Poland, as the Baltic nations have warned for a very long time. If Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, then he will look for further territorial gains elsewhere in Europe as well. Is, is that the message to partners now? Yes, of course. We Poles often like to remind ourselves and others what our then-president Lech Kaczynski said back in Tbilisi in 2008 during the Russian aggression against Georgia. He stood on the main avenue in Tbilisi where crowds were gathering. He said, it's Georgia today, it could be the Baltic countries tomorrow, Ukraine, and then it could be my country, Poland. So we're fully aware of the fact that these imperial colonial aims are emerging. Russia is basically behaving like a colonial country. It wants to colonize others, take away their freedoms, exploit their resources. It wants to juice other people's potential, their economic potential, their natural resources. Today that's what's happening in Ukraine. It would be the same for other countries. Russia wants to extend its sphere of influence and exploit other nations. That's always been the case for centuries. Poland was partitioned for 123 years. Parts of Poland were under Tsar rule. So we're perfectly aware of what's happening, so that's why we defend ourselves. If someone says Ruski Mir, meaning a Russian world or Russian peace, we say absolutely no. Anything but Russia, anything but the Russian sphere of influence. The German finance minister Christian Linder told CNBC that there are no winners in a trade war, saying the EU needs to work with the United States to coordinate the plan to tackle inflation. We need trade diplomacy and not any kind of a trade war or a competition between the United States and European Union who can afford uh, to pay more subsidies. Um, there will be two losers, uh, the US and European Union. Um, I understand uh, that the Biden administration uh, wants to uh, foster a green transition. And uh, I understand uh, their concerns with regard uh, to People's Republic of China. But we have to mitigate the neg negative side effects uh, on uh, European Union and um, our bilateral uh, trade relationship. And this is why um, we uh, need to um, consider um, how we can mitigate the negative effects on the European Union. And this is why my proposal is talking about free trade among US and European uh, Union and avoid any kind uh, of uh, competition 
or even a controversy in a trade policy. But, but I'm confused. Please, please help me understand. At the same time that you say this, my understanding is the German government would also like to relax state aid rules for specific course, industries yes. within Europe. Now, that is not a view that everybody within the EU or the Eurozone agrees with. They think that this is another way of supporting German automakers or German manufacturing businesses through the back door. How can you relax state aid rules and have a level playing field on trade? Well, we have um, the next generation EU program with um, about 800 billion euros. Um, and uh, in my eyes, it needs to be more agile. Um, we don't need more public sector money. Uh, but we need to use this money um, in an agile way. And uh, it's not about paying subsidies uh, for uh, German uh, car manufacturers. Uh, frankly, they have the uh, greatest products uh, in the world and they are competitive. They don't need uh, subsidies from the German finance minister. What we need is um, improving uh, framework conditions for um, all businesses. We need supply-side policies in the European Union. We need to make further ever efforts to deepen the single market, to make progress on capital markets union. So this leads to more competitiveness, not paying more subsidies. Nice work there, Jeff. Thank you very much indeed for that, everybody. Right, okay, still ahead on the show. We're gonna, we've got some first-ons. ABN AMRO, Telenor, ING, Infosys, Nokia, and Wipro, as well as the European Economy Commissioner, Paolo Gentiloni. We'll be back after a short break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, welcome back. We just had a terrific conversation in the break. Hopefully we'll have the same conversation with the same gentleman in a moment's time. But uh, Morgan Stanley topping estimates for its fourth quarter earnings, boosted by record wealth management revenue. But the US lenders' profits declined due to a slowdown in M&A activity. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs posted its largest earnings miss in a decade, with fourth quarter revenue sliding 16% compared with the year before, whilst profit plunged 66%. The bank reported higher than expected operating expenses in the period. Now, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan told our US colleagues here in Davos that he expected to see a mild recession in the US this year. The consumer spending across our customer base has slowed, which means that's good news and bad news. So first quarter of 22 over first quarter of 21, 14 and a half percent, about 5 percent, fourth quarter of 22 over fourth quarter of 20, uh, 21. So far this month, actually, it's back up six, seven percent. So it's resilient. But that 5 percent is more consistent with a 
uh, 2% growth economy as opposed to a faster growing economy or in lower inflation, honestly. But that consumer spending is strong. The consumers have money in their accounts. They spend it down a little bit. They still have a lot there. So my belief is a mild recession. Meanwhile, Jane Fraser, the CEO of City, told CNBC that uh, she expects the Fed to stay resolute in its battle against inflation. I think everyone's converging now in the States more around a mild, manageable recessionary scenario um, driven by the strength that we've got in the labor markets. And as a result, together with um, persistence in inflation for services, you will see a resolute Fed. Our U.S. colleagues will be speaking to the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, later today here in Davos. So catch that interview, I think, 1345 CET. And they'll also be speaking to the J.P. Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon. That one is at 1210 CET on Thursday. Plus, (laughs) it goes on, doesn't it? Uh, Tomorrow, they'll be joined by James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley. Tune into that interview at 1400 CET. But we can answer that. We've got some titans of European banking here, Jeff. Absolutely. Uh, The uh, aforementioned uh, gentleman with us is uh, Robert Swark, the CEO of ABN AMRO. Robert, good morning to you. Nice to see you. Let let me just pick up off some of those uh, those comments from the US uh, bank CEOs, because I think we're all grappling with... Should we be more positive about the year ahead? Should we be more negative about the year ahead? How do you think it plays out from here in terms of inflation, interest rates and markets? Yeah, so I'd like to start with where we are today. So if you look at where we, if you begin to compare it where we started, you know, this year, extremely worried about where these markets were going to go, extremely worried what the next steps were going to be. And what we've actually seen is expected inflation rate, highs, uh, rate hikes um, because of the fact that we do have the energy um, uh, conflicts continuing, yet the response has been so united across Europe, where we've actually seen a situation now where energy um, supply is coming under control to the extent that Russian gas still is flowing, reserves are still up, production has been, levels have been generally kind of maintained, uh, and at the same time we've seen gas usage drop, so gas demands beginning to drop. It hasn't notably yet impacted production materially across Europe, mm-hmm. which is interesting because once you think about what we were initially anticipating were huge drop-offs. Now, we were helped by the winter. I think we're sitting here being freezing cold, but at the same time, winter has been benign, and let's hope that the next few months will continue to be that case, and therefore demand is allowed to continue to slack off as it is. Now, inflation, the underlying component in inflation right now, um, it used to be gas and gas prices driving inflation rates. The, one, the worry I do have as we look forward into 23 is that the underlying inflation is now also continuing. So inflation has been now just limited to energy price hikes, but literally it has impacted the economies. So, but so we do little- see the energy component yeah. starting to be less relevant for the inflation and more the underlying components, uh, underlying inflation. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, I really hope you're right. But I was watching the snow fall in Spain yesterday and thinking, oh, dear, is this the winter coming that we thought we'd avoided? And we will see what happens to energy prices from here on in. Yeah. But you can't build a portfolio on the daily movement in the gas price in Europe. You need to think a bit harder, I think, about the second round effects in terms of inflation yeah. and whether it's sticky yeah. and whether the ECB gets back to its 2% target anytime soon. 
And ultimately, then, what that means for where we top out on European rates. Right. So ultimately, that means that you're going to take a look at this, uh, the, th- the third and fourth quarter uh, of 2023. So I think we're all agreed that the economic situations in the first two quarters right now, we're, we're into that recession that we've all, all talked about. Now, the question is, how will inflation continue to behave, given the energy component of this, the underlying component of inflation, and then subsequent, the ECB uh, response to that. But, I, you know, the expectation will be that the if there's any reduction um, in uh, interest rates, it'll be toward the end of uh, 23 rather than clearly on uh, the beginning of 23. Robert, I'm always amazed at the naivety. Every single cycle, well, we didn't see too many rate rising cycles recently, but in my lifetime, we've seen one or two. Uh, and the naivety of people say, it's okay, the banks are going to clean up because the NIMs are going to widen. We're going to have net interest income and net interest margin. It's going to be fantastic for them. And like, I always have to point out that actually there's another side to the coin, which we're beginning to see in the States, which is delinquencies pick up. The ability of people to service their loans pick up. The economic activity will necessarily decline in that period as well. So actually... A lot of the share prices of European and US banks don't rally because of their NIMS. They don't. They go down because of a lot of other concerns as well. well why but, would we fall into the same trap every time? Well, the question is, why would you fall into the same <laughs> trap every single time? Because you know, uh, in, in financial institutions, that is the one place to actually watch for. As you get into a situation where NII is doing what it is, interest rates are now doing what they are, you do have that underlying demand and you do have that underlying notion of your cost of risk. What is your cost of risk going to do in the underlying economic situations? That's the modeling that you do. That's the provisioning that you do. And ideally, you've got that consistency in the model of your own bank to ensure that you anticipate the times that are ahead. And this is my point. When the mortgage rates start ticking up across Europe because people's deals come to an end as well, when their car loans, their student loans, their other loans, their revolving credit loans start picking up as well, I think that's part of what you're talking about the second half of this year as this, well. This, this so is where the real is going to really be the problem. So yeah? this is why we don't we shouldn't be um, blind in the first two quarters of this year. Yeah. We should be taking that year view and then plus and then some and learn from previous crises. For example, when you look at our Davian Amro's situation in terms of mortgages, what did we learn? We learned that mortgages would be impacted not only by uh, rate increases as they are, which impact volumes and prices, but also by unemployment. So what's underlying employment doing right now? How are the labor markets developing in light of the inflation that we're currently seeing in our various markets? Now, labor markets are still pretty tight. So when do we expect that to turn? Will it turn? Uh, because the demand for labor is still there. And that's what makes this recession really unprecedented. I mean, it started with a supply cho- shock. It is in a way supported. I don't think we've ever seen that kind of support from governments now trying to uh, compensate for the effects. And at the same time, what we see is an immediate kind of pulling together of political forces trying to stimmy the very effects that we're seeing. So, so, so it's a different situation that we're currently so, in, so different pick, type of recession. Pick, picking up on, on Steve's point, though, um, you have to make some decisions in the bank about how you manage this period. You've got a fifth of the Dutch mortgage market. You're the biggest provider in the market. That that means you're exposed to any significant downturn. The, 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 cent- the Dutch Central Bank is talking about a growth rate of less than 1%. I think for 2023. So that clearly indicates they think that consumers and businesses are going to pull in their spending somewhat. How do you grow the loan book and protect against the risk of rising impairment? Will you be provisioning extra through these first two quarters? How will you tempt businesses to come and take loans from AB and AMRO? Yeah, we'll start talking about provisioning in our next two quarters as we begin to release our our Q4 numbers. But generally speaking, in mortgages, 
we always watch very carefully what the interest rates developments are going to do, what the underlying volumes and the underlying pricing effects are, and as I said, what the underlying unemployment will be in the expectation thereof in the long term. We know we do have a lot of empirical evidence. It's part of being one of the market leaders or the market leader, depending on what quarter you're looking at, uh, in mortgages. So you have a lot of underlying data to assess what the potential is given the economic circumstances. Robert, we've got to wrap it up, but we will see you hopefully on the earnings. So we'll look, look forward, forward to, to that. Uh, Robert uh, Swart, the CEO of ABN AMRO. Uh, just on the uh, the panels, um, Karen is set to host a panel today on how multinationals can continue to drive the global effort towards responsible capitalism. That starts at 9 CET, so don't miss that. Uh, and I will tottle off uh, a little bit later on. Really totter off. Me? I will. I will be leaving you. <laughs> a bit like yesterday, really, when, when, I, left uh, you. when I was holding the fort. <laughs> um, I'll hold a panel on the future of the labour market. Don't miss that conversation. That is also from 9 CET. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.